0: My name is Chad. I'm one of the pastors here on South Campus. So we are over halfway through our Psalm series for the summer. Uh, today we'll we'll make uh, five more to go. So you guys are doing great. I know we've heard from a lot of different voices this summer, and that can be challenging for uh, a body that's used to hearing from our senior pastor primarily, Ross. So it's a it's a privilege and an honor to to be a vessel of God in proclaiming His Word this morning. I just wanted to pat all of y'all on the back for listening to what God has to say to you through many different voices. So before we jump in, let's look to the Lord in prayer and ask His blessing on this time. Father, we come to You through Your Son and by Your Spirit, and we praise You, God. Thank You for saving us through Your Son, Jesus. Thank You for Your Word. Thank you for your spirit who helps us know what your word says and then gives us the power to apply it. Pray that we would hear your truth through your word this morning. Bless us during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you something. Uh, Have you ever had a problem uh, that got you all worked up? And if you would have just left the problem alone, it would have worked itself out. Instead of waiting, though, instead of just not jumping into the problem and getting all worked up and anxious and afraid, you pressed into the problem, doing all within your power to resolve that problem. Hey, praise God for the rain, right? Doing all that you could to resolve that problem. But in the end, the problem persisted and all you really had to show for yourself was even more anxiety and fear regarding the problem. So earlier this week I misplaced my sunglasses. Now I know what you're all saying. They're just sunglasses. Go down to the convenience store buy a new pair. Well, I really like these sunglasses. I've had them a long time. 12 years. I know. I know that I know when I bought them. Uh, they don't make these sunglasses anymore, uh, so I can't just go down and buy a pair. And I needed them to drive to work because I'm, I'm that kid growing up in all the family photos squinting because you can't see uh, with the sun outside. So I needed my sunglasses. And so uh, I was preparing to leave, to go to work for a meeting that I needed to be at on time. But I, I decided to spend that time looking for my sunglasses. I looked in all the normal spots where they should be. They weren't there, and so my fear and my anxiety began to increase. Uh, What if my little two-year-old and his sticky fingers got a hold of them and the sunglasses were no more? So I pressed on, uh, determined to resolve this problem, looking in uh, more unusual places, looking under the couch, looking in that that drawer that we all have in our kitchen just filled with random stuff that you're not quite sure what to do with. So there were no sunglasses. I looked in all the normal and abnormal spots. And what I should have done, what I should have done is just gone to work and shown up on time for the meeting I needed to be on time for. Because what I didn't know at that moment was that my sunglasses were hiding in the backyard in some tall grass that I would never find and that my four-year-old later that day would find them as she was just randomly playing on her swing. So the problem was not something I could fix in the time that I had, but that was where my focus was, my energy. And it got me all worked up, got me all afraid, And the problem persisted, and it eventually worked itself out. So this is a really silly example to prove a point. We get anxious, even fearful, about troubling circumstances as trivial as lost sunglasses. We do. We get worked up about trivial circumstances that are troubling. And if this is true, how much more worked up, anxious, and fearful do we get about troubling circumstances that are legitimate, legitimate circumstances. So our psalm this morning is Psalm 49. And it's going to focus on a legitimate, troubling issue. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 49. And here's what I want you to know overall about this psalm. Psalm 49 is about believers, Christians presently, faithful Jews then, dealing with the anxiety and the fear we feel when threatened by rich and powerful unbelievers, oppressors, those we might call the powerful elite or the unbelieving elite, those who do not know God yet have enough money and power to push along an agenda that makes us feel threatened, that makes us anxious and fearful. So the author of our psalm was a believing Israelite who was forced to endure threats, threats from rich and powerful, unbelieving Israelites who were corrupt. Okay, so that's the context of our psalm. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And in this psalm, our author poses... rhetorical question, meaning the obvious is answered; The answer is obvious. His rhetorical question is, why should I fear the threats of the rich and the powerful who do not know God? Why should I fear the threats and the powerful, the threats of the rich and the powerful who do not know God? But because it's rhetorical, it's more a statement of fact, meaning there's no reason. There's no reason that I should fear or any believer should fear when encountering threats from rich and powerful unbelievers. And we're going to talk about those threats. Now, for the vast majority of this this morning, we can't really relate to the direct context of our psalmist. I can't imagine being in a situation where I am threatened by a rich and powerful person who does not know God, and I don't have the ability to simply call the police or hire a lawyer and file a lawsuit or, or call my representative. So that's not exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning. The threats that we're going to be talking about that I believe we feel as Christians from the rich and powerful who do not know God is what's called an existential threat. An existential threat. Now, an existential threat is something we perceive or we observe on a massive scale, global or just our country here. But it's on a massive scale, and it's this antagonistic agenda that we feel is against us as Christians. It's threatening our way of life. It's threatening our institutions. We fear it could be the demise of all that we hold dear in our country, So what the specifics of this existential threat are, I'm going to leave up to you. Because there's many threats that we perceive, and there's many sides to those threats. And so you just pick one that you view as very threatening, and just hold on to it as we talk through this sermon this morning. So we sense this. We sense this threat, this existential threat on a a massive scale with this antagonistic agenda coming for us to change our way of life. Should we be anxious about it? Should we fear it? Our author this morning, the psalmist, unequivocally says no. No. No anxiety, no fear is necessary for any threat real or observed against God's children. And not only does he say no, but he explains why we are not to fear threats from those who do not know God, no matter how big they are or how small, no matter how rich they are or powerful. He tells us why. And he also charts a way forward for us. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning is how, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, whose citizenship is in heaven, how do we deal with threats brought on by the rich and the powerful who do not know God? The kind of threats that many of us feel are sweeping across our country. So let's begin with verses 1 through 4 in Psalm 49. We're going to see the psalmist calling us to pay attention to his instructions. He's inviting us to hear what he has to say regarding this matter. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. So two things I want to point out. First, his instructions are for everyone, for everyone. He wants everyone to pay attention. In verses 1 and 2, we see all peoples, both low and high, rich and poor, together. We can all benefit from this. If you're influential and wealthy, our psalmist has something to say. Or if you're insignificant and penniless, our psalmist has something to say, which we can all benefit from. Second, I want to point out to you that the psalmist describes his words in verse 3 two ways. He describes them as wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding. In the book of Proverbs, this skill, this ability to be wise and understanding is attributed to God. It is sourced in God, and it is given to God's children. It's His. He imparts it to us. To be wise and understanding is to make the proper judgment on an issue or to make the right decision, often on a moral or spiritual level, but not always. So what the psalmist is saying is, his words, the fact that they are wise and understanding, his words are the proper response to threats that believers either feel or perceive are coming upon them by the powerful who do not know God. The psalmist is saying that these are not his words. This is not his opinion on the matter. That these are God's words. This is God's opinion on the matter. Now we here at Bethel hold to a doctrine called the inspiration of Scripture. That means we believe God, by the Spirit, has carried along the authors to write his very words without violating their human personalities. So this verse is in support of that. Practically speaking, the whole reason I'm demonstrating for you that these are God's words, is this is why we go to Scripture for answers in life, whether it's a challenge or something that is perplexing, whatever it might be, God's opinion on the matter matters most. And so there's lots of different sources we can go to for guidance. And today, we're going to scriptures for guidance relating regarding that existential threat that we fear is coming for us to change the very way we live. So with all this in mind, let's look at verses 5 through 12. And what I want to see here or show you here is our psalmist poses his, his question, why should I fear, his rhetorical question. And then he begins to explain for us why we should not fear. So look with me in verses 5 through 12. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another. Or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names... Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. So why are we not to fear the threats, no matter how large or small, from those who do not know God? In the end, all people die, and even the rich and the powerful do not have enough wealth, do not have enough powerful to escape death. So in verse 5 we see our psalmists describe these unbelievers as those who cheat me. This is the same group in verse 6 of those who trust in their wealth. So this is a a wealthy group that is antagonizing our weak-believing psalmist. And from the psalmist's perspective... What do you think the heart of the issue is? He describes his challenge, he describes the threat as times of trouble. Do you think that's the heart of the issue for our psalmist? Or the fact that he's been cheated? Do you think that's the heart of the issue for our psalmist? Neither of these are the heart of the issue from his perspective on what really matters The real issue at hand for our psalmist who is being cheated, who is surrounded by the iniquity of these rich and powerful unbelievers, the heart of the issue from his perspective is the faulty object the rich are trusting in. The faulty object they are building their lives around. Their riches, their power. You see, all people trust in something. No one trusts in nothing. We all trust in something to provide security for our lives. And the rich in our psalm are trusting in their wealth and its subsequent power for their security. So from this point forward, our psalmist and his wisdom is building a case for why that is a foolish move on their behalf. So read with me verses 7 through 9 again. Truly no man can ransom another. Or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. So basically the psalmist assessment of these these rich, these powerful who do not know God. And yet are trusting in their riches and their power. Is that they might have the resources to cheat other people. Or even buy off other people. But they cannot cheat death. And they cannot buy off God. This is beyond their ability as people. One commentator put it this way. All the money in the world cannot buy anyone a single day of life beyond what God has decreed. And our psalmist is putting his finger on that. Yet, they still try today. If you are looking to waste some time, just Google technology that will make us live forever. You'll see all kinds of soon-to-be cutting-edge inventions or awesome ideas to help people cheat death, live forever. You'll see everything from the cutting-edge tech of uploading our minds onto some device to still, it's still around. People are still utilizing uh, the cryo, uh, uh, what is it? cryogenetic freezers to preserve their bodies for, I guess, eternity until technology catches up. Everyone wants to live forever, but there's no tech, there's no money, there's no power that can cheat death or buy God off. So earlier this summer, I taught Faith, my oldest daughter, how to ride her bike without training wheels. Before we began, I got everything ready. I put her seat as low as it could go so she could still stand up. I... uh, filled up her tires, we we, we found a nice little flat spot to practice. It wasn't long before we got going that I realized one of her tires had a slow leak. I didn't perceive it at first, I didn't see it at first, but after a while, sure enough, this tire has got a leak. It's hard enough to teach your daughter how to ride her bike without training wheels and then you throw in a leaky tire and it just makes it so frustrating. Every few minutes we'd have to stop and add air to this leaky tire just to help her keep going on. Basing our life, basing your life, anyone's life, off the security of wealth is like riding a bike with a leaky tire. It might work all right for short distances, but it won't get you very far. Constantly adding air to the tire is not the answer. We need a new tire. The rich in our psalm need a different object to trust in. Verse 6, those who trust in their wealth. These rich, these powerful who do not know God are trusting in the wrong object. This object will not help them overcome their greatest security issue, death. It won't get them there. It's a leaky tire. Let's look now again at verses 10 through 12 where the psalmist kind of broadens his scope focusing on all people, basically saying that death comes for all people. Read with me verses 10 through 12. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others their graves are their homes forever their dwelling places to all generations though they called lands by their own names man in his pomp will not remain he is like the beasts that perish as long as the lord tarries as long as the lord jesus christ tarries we will all die one day that's what our psalmist is saying So, why does this reality that the death can't, that the rich can't cheat death or buy God off and that all people will die? Why does this reality provide our psalmist godly assurance to not fear the rich and powerful who do not know God? All people are just people. We are all the same, and that we are all people who will all die. And in the end, None of us holds any power. God alone holds in his hand the power of life and death. And that's who our psalmist is trusting in. It's it's helpful to ask ourselves, who or what are we trusting in? Who or what are we trusting in for security? Both now and in, in the life to come, the reality that death awaits us. So our wise psalmist is calling us, all of us, to not trust in anything faulty. And anything faulty is anything outside of God and His Son. It's all shaky ground except for the Lord. So let's look now at verses 13 through 20. Here our psalmist continues imparting wisdom and understanding on the foolishness of the rich, trusting in their wealth and power rather than God. 13, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts, like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So here our psalmist, what he's doing is he's showing us a very stark contrast. The contrast is between what the unbeliever and what the believer can expect beyond the grave. Let's look more closely at the eternal destiny of those who do not know God. It's not a pretty picture, but I think that's the point. The psalmist wants everyone to see this is not the right path. Verse 13, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. What he's saying is this is the path of those who trust in anything other than God, ultimately, for their security to overcome death. In verses 14 through 15, he lays out that path, or 14 through 20, rather. We see three times in verses 14 and 15, this mention of Sheol. Now, sometimes Sheol is just a place of the dead. But here, Sheol is more than just a metaphor for the grave. It's the place of eternal destruction for those who ultimately reject God. Our psalmist goes on to describe Sheol as a place where the once wealthy are now bankrupt in the fullest sense of the word. Look at the first line of verse 17. He will carry nothing away. What he's saying is you can't take anything with you, not your money, not your possessions, nothing. Look at the second line of verse 17. His glory will not go after him. This is saying that they will have no fame, no power, no influence that they assumed they were benefiting from in this life. That which once gave them meaning and significance is forever gone. And finally, the second line of verse 19. Go ahead and look at that. They will never again see light. Now, this is troubling. I I kept digging around on this because it just was very unsettling this very well could mean exactly what it says. That there will be no light. That for those who do not know God and ultimately reject God, their eternal existence will be shrouded in darkness. So this is the eternal death awaiting those who do not know God and ultimately reject God. It's intended to be shocking and sobering. So let's look now at the life beyond the grave, the life to come for the believer, those who who know God, who have trusted in His Son for the forgiveness of their sins. It's interesting, it's not given as much space, but the point comes across. It's a stark difference. So look at the third line of verse 14. We see, "...and the upright shall rule over them in the morning." This ruling over in the morning is a picture of God one day delivering those who have trusted in his son from all corruption, from all evil, from all wickedness, from all threats, and even vindicating them, giving them the right to rule with his son on a new earth, free from sin. So God will one day without question, He will one day without question prove our faith. God will do this. He will prove our faith in His Son as the good, the wise, the true choice. For the believer, that day will ultimately come when the Lord returns, when He establishes His rule. This is not a day we as the church usher in. This day where the rule of God covers the face of the earth where the kingdom of God is firmly planted and everyone is living according to that, this is a day that the Lord will usher in. So read with me again verse 15. I want to point one thing else out to you. Verse 15 says, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. This ransoming and this receiving we as New Testament believers are able to look back on this today and say confidently that because of our faith in the Lord Jesus, His death for us, and His resurrection from the grave, we will all one day receive a resurrection body free from sin. And with these resurrection bodies, we will, we will rule on a new earth in the very presence of God. The rich unbeliever, on the other hand, will have nothing. He, will, he or she will continue to live on eternally, but with nothing worse than that, worse than nothing. All those descriptors we just talked about that are so shocking and sobering. So again, why doesn't our psalmist fear those causing him trouble, these, these threats that for him were very personal? They, they were very much so direct threats to him. He didn't fear because he knew and he trusted that the soon-to-be-fulfilled hope that he was holding on to is far superior to the false security and the temporary doom or the temporary power of the wealthy who reject God and their impending doom. His hope was superior in all ways to anything that those who do not know God are temporarily enjoying. And his hope is superior to the impending doom awaiting them. So that's why he didn't fear. He held on to that hope. But what about this question that we've we've posed of responding to, to threats of the rich and powerful who do not know God? What does our psalmist teach us on responding to them more than just not fearing them? So again, according to our author, what do you think he identifies as that which separates him from those who do not know God? He identifies for us one thing that separates his place in, God, in God's family and the unbelievers' place outside of God's family. He calls it understanding. Understanding. Look at verse 20. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. The psalmist understands this truth, that trusting in God for your salvation is what separates him from this impending doom. He understands the significance of his faith in the one true God. He understands what is awaiting him and what is also awaiting those who have rejected God. So he highlights for us the unbeliever's lack of understanding. This is a a crucial role in his mind of how we as a church are to respond to them. The psalmist does not think he is better than the unbeliever. The psalmist simply recognizes that he understands the truth and he believes the truth about who God is and for us today, who his son is, our savior. So let me ask you something based on that fact. Do you think our psalmist wants these unbelievers who are threatening him to understand the foolishness of their ways and be ransomed? Or... You think he wants them to remain in their ignorance so that they can be led away to Sheol and suffer eternally. He wants them to understand. He wants them to come to a knowledge of the truth and to turn to God in faith and believe upon him, trust in him. For them again, the Lord God, the one true God, the God of Israel. For us today, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that. We see the heart of our psalmist wanting them to gain this knowledge, this understanding, this saving faith. And the fact that in verses three, 1 through 3, he's inviting everyone. He's calling everyone to come and hear what he has to say. He wants to impart this wisdom. He wants to impart this understanding on eternal matters to everyone. That's his heart. He wants everyone, including those threatening him, to understand and to believe rightly in the Lord. So what about us today, Tyler, Texas? What's our response to this existential threat that we we sense is coming from the corrupt elite, whoever they are and whatever the threat might be? What's our response to those who do not know God And yet we fear they might change our entire way of life. How do we as a church deal with this threat? We don't fear unbelievers as threats. We engage with them as ambassadors of Christ. We don't fear unbelievers as threats. We engage them as ambassadors of Christ. You see, unbelievers are not threats, they are people. They are people who do not know God, who need to understand who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, and trust in him in order to be forgiven. In order to escape this doom, to pass from death to life. How does God? How does God see these people? Who do not know Him. Does He see them as threats? God sees unbelievers as image bearers. People He's created. That He sent His Son to die for. So that they might be forgiven. So that they might be saved from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. You see, sin is the enemy. Sin is the problem and sin is in every one of our hearts even those of us who have trusted in Christ we still have the flesh we're still wrestling with the sin within what our psalmist is telling us here is we are mistaken if as a church we align ourselves with a cause that believes we can establish God's kingdom by passing good laws and electing the right officials Laws and elected officials are not the stuff of God's kingdom. A saving relationship with Jesus is. Because we're looking at it from an eternal perspective. Our citizenship is in heaven. Remember what Jesus said before he returned to the Father? He gave us very clear instructions regarding our posture toward unbelieving people. He told us to go and to teach Everyone the truth of who He is. The Redeemer. So that they might believe in Him. And experience redemption. Perhaps some of you are asking yourself. Well, what if they refuse to believe. And their, their threats. Their threatening agenda persists. Well. The psalmist makes clear for us. That that's God's business. God will one day dole out justice for those who have rejected His Son. But until that day comes, those of us who have believed upon Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins, we are called to lovingly engage with unbelievers as ambassadors of God's Son. We're to share with them the life-saving message of who Jesus is and what He's accomplished and come alongside them and help them to grow. Remember, we were all at one time on that, in that other camp, so to speak. Every one of us at one time was someone who did not know God. So let's be people who are known by our love for the lost. Our love for the lost and not our laws against them. Let's be people who are for the salvation of the lost and not against their sins. So how do we do this? This is is a big ask. We've been sent. Every single one of us has been sent. We are all on mission. Whoever you come across that does not yet know God, that's your mission field. Whether they're at work or across the street, we are to share with them who Jesus is. What he's accomplished on the cross. And how you receive that forgiveness by trusting in him. This is what we've been called to. And it's it's frightening. It's difficult. But if we keep this eternal perspective. That God is governing. God does have a plan. And God has given us a mission. A posture towards those who do not know him. It's to lovingly engage as ambassadors of Christ. Let's pray. Father we come to you. As those who are weak, what power do we have? We have the power of the gospel, Lord. I pray that we would would share that life-changing message with others, that we would live out the truth of who Jesus is, that that would be how we utilize our time, our efforts, our energy, that we would be a church that demonstrates love, always in accord with truth, Pray your blessing upon us. Pray that you'd guide us in your wisdom by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.